A reading from 1 Samuel. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, so often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and nor razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, the God of Israel. Grant the petition you made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was set no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him for the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversary shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. 
and exalt the power of his anointed. The word of the Lord. As I was re- getting ready for, uh, for this morning, um, the story of Hannah was just jumping out uh, on me. And uh, so I decided to talk about Hannah's journey of transformation. Um, so I've written today's homily in four parts, and you can follow on the screen or in your bulletin. Um, but I think we can all agree that all of us um, always encounter a situation or a, a problem or a difficulty, and that kind of starts uh, or triggers something in us. It, it, it triggers a discovery that something is kind of not right. Um, and so let's start with Hannah. Hannah is married to Elkanah, and the text tells us that Elkanah deeply loves Hannah. However, Hannah and Elkanah are unable to conceive a child. Even though Elkanah loves Hannah, without a child, without a male son, uh, Elkanah's lineage and uh, in a very real sense, his life force would for the most part end at his grave. Uh, As a result, Elkanah finds a second wife, uh, uh, Penina. So we're going to call her Penny. Right, just she's Penny from now on, and so Penny is actually able to give Elkanah many children, uh, many sons and daughters. And uh, now, before you get all crazy with Elkanah, this was a common practice in those days. Um, and so, let's not jump all over Elkanah. He he wasn't, you know, doing this for fun. He he, he needed a son. Um, the ancient mind believed that a situation like this lay entirely at uh, the feet of the woman. She was the one to blame for uh, being unable to conceive. Um, It was believed that, you know, she at some point had done something wrong. There was some kind of of sin or misstep uh, that must have occurred or, or even a shortcoming that must have occurred to have caused her womb to close. At the very least, at the very least, and we pick this up in the text, God, if not directly responsible, he was uh, approving. He was nodding, like, go ahead, you know, of her condition. And so every year, this family would go to Shiloh to where the Ark of the Covenant was located and offer sacrifice. Uh, Elkanah would give a portion of the offering to Penny and her children. But to Hannah, the text tells us that he would give a double portion. Um, Now, I don't believe he was doing this out of pity or to kind of liven her spirits up. I, I think this extra portion was generated out of a deep love for his wife. Uh, We're told that this yearly ritual was excruciating for Hannah. Penny would take delight in her status as the woman who gave Elkanah children, and she really rubbed it in. I am sure Penny did this because she herself was uh, wounded and deeply hurt that although she was the one 
that gave Elkanah children. Elkanah loved Hannah. And so she herself was caught in this awkward situation. She performed, and yet she did not receive love, or the same amount of love. You see, both Hannah and Penny tied their worth to childbearing. Um, And so Penny felt cheated that although she had, she had done what she was, you know, designed to do, what she was created to do, she did not receive Elkanah's love equally. Um, I should have started by saying that this first part of our journey where we find ourselves trapped or living in the world of merit. That's where we find ourselves almost always starting. We find that our value and our identity and our worth comes from some type of merit. For these women, the merit came from being mothers. I think often those around you who are hurtful to you and who cause you pain or, or discomfort or, are so because they themselves are carrying deep and unhealed wounds. Uh, Pastor Kevin has a phrase, and he says, hurt people hurt people. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Father Boyle, uh, in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, and I'm going to quote his book a lot today, he says it this way. You stand with the belligerent, the surly, I'm not really sure what surly means, but the surly, and the badly behaved until bad behaviors recognize for the language it is, the vocabulary of the deeply wounded and of, the, and of those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And so I think even in Alcana, we see a love for Penny. She does provide for Penny and her children, and yet Penny, in her jealousy, she does not allow that love to be received. So I was <clears throat> a little... Uh, a little of a latecomer to the world of dating. Um, I did not have a girlfriend until pretty much well into college. And uh, my friend James is here. See, now he's laughing at me. But James back there, I'm sorry, I don't mean to point you out. Uh, he was my roommate in college. So he knows of who I was talking, I'm talking about. That's why he's giggling back there. But... Um, um, so for most of my high school and even into early college, uh, I felt, you know, for the most part, incomplete. There was, there was something definitely missing. Every, everybody else had girlfriends. So, like, you know, what's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. And so this, this continual question of what's wrong with me led to a dislike of who I was. Um, um, after all, the issue must be here. I remember one girl, um, she made a comment like, oh, you know, it's, it's like, I don't like your haircut or something. So that just drove me nuts. Because I'm like, I went through book, you know, you, go, you sit at the barbershop and you look at the books of, of haircuts and you're like, what kind of haircut gets you a girlfriend? <laughs> because apparently she, she said it's the hair. So it's, okay, what haircut will work then? But we all know it's, it's not a stupid hair. 
sorry, kids. The, my my uh, daughter said, Pastor Kevin said a bad word. But what did he say? He said, okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> I need to not say bad words when I'm preaching. So back to Hannah. It's easy now to see that her situation created this basic fear. And the fear that um, living in a world of merit um, can create is, at least for Hannah, is the fear that she will be forgotten, um, that she will be erased and not counted. Um, and so Hannah saw herself as worthless and not a whole person or, or even a whole woman because she was, of, you know, in her mind, she was of no use to Alcala. Um, and this, this internal lie that, you, that we tend to live with, um, or I'm going to call it a false self, this, this narrative that we keep repeating to ourselves, um, in Hannah it manifested itself in self-neglect um, and, and living in this fragmented life. The text tells us that she would not eat, that she would not drink, uh, that she suffered great anxiety and sadness and deep weeping. She had a disconnect with her husband, Elkanah, um, and which meant that she could not enjoy and live out her, her femininity and even her sexuality. She was like caught in this loop. And Hannah kept operating in a world of merit where her identity and her worth as a person, as a woman, as a wife, was directly tied to her ability to give life. For me, this merit came in me having a girlfriend. And, and all of us, at one point or another, um, can, can become stuck. Or we tend to operate in this world of merit. And we tie our identity or our value um, to a false premise. And it can create a basic fear and a false self. And it can manifest its, itself in, in various forms, often very negatively. And so I think that often those who are operating on this place of merit will have their identity shaped by what's missing in their life. Um, I was missing a girlfriend, so my identity was hung up on that. Um, and we can do this with almost anything or anyone. Being married, if you're single, your identity is on the hopes, if I was only married, then everything would be fine, or that would make me whole, or that would make me happy and complete. Um, maybe it's, it's like Hannah, you, you're desiring to have a child. Uh, maybe it's a job or a financial situation or security. It could even be beauty, um, even, even the way your body looks. We, we all have this, can get tied into this false premise of something that will bring us our identity, and it can create a vicious loop, and it's just playing itself over and over unless we discover a way out of it. That leads us to our second part. The way out of that loop is by going or accepting an invitation to suffer and to die. So for us to change, we must go to the center of our being. 
where we must experience a type of surrender and a type of death. And so Hannah takes matters into her own hands and decides to go and confront Yahweh. Hannah puts out her heart and her soul to God. She lays her anxiety, her deep wound, her brokenness, and she weeps bitterly at, uh, at the temple. I am reminded so much of Jesus here as he too must confront his deep fear and as he pleads with God that perhaps there is another way out as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. For any real transformation to occur in our lives, all of us must go to the center place where we are invited to suffer and to allow a part of ourselves to die. We must come to the end of our abilities, the end of our strength, the end of our control, the end of our talents, and even to the end of the illusion that somehow we are separated from everybody else. We must reach the very end of ourselves. For those of you who are living in sobriety, you know this all too well. Uh, there is a dying that must happen uh, and that must continually happen uh, for a new life to change or a new life to emerge. I was at Pete's Coffee on Friday, and uh, so I have a new rule in my life, and it's once a week, usually on Friday, because hey, it's Friday, I, am, I give myself you know, permission to order something from the pastry kit. Right, so, I mean, Fridays are, Fridays are a good day. Um, so I was standing in front of the, the pastry case, just like, oh my goodness, this all looks so good. Which, like, which one, which one? And this older gentleman stands next to me, and he's doing the same thing. And I'm like, uh, I, so I said, you know, it's Friday for me, so I, once a, one a week, today's my day. And he said, oh yeah, me too, today's my day. <laughs> so <laughs> we're both looking at these pastries like, you know, we're like little kids in a candy shop. Um, but the old me would have had one every day. So every, I, now I don't go and get pizza every day, but when I walk in, I have, to, I have to get my coffee and walk past that pastry case if it's not Friday. So that there's a type of letting go that has to happen for change. There's a type of, of now it's first world problems, but a type of suffering, right? For any change that, that, that occurs in our life, there has to be that. Hannah lets go of her attachment to believing that her worth and her value comes from her ability to produce a son. And she lays bare this suffering, this anxiety, this deep wound as she communes with God. You will notice in verse 16 that her basic fear bubbles up in this place of surrender. Eli mistakes her as a, uh, a person who's, who's under influence. I don't you love Eli? Hey, drunk woman. <laughs> what are you doing here? And her response is her basic fear. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Right there, it bubbles up. Please don't see me as worthless. 
the very place where God is meeting her. She's, she's almost praying, she's almost saying out loud to Eli, the representative of God, don't see me as I see myself. The false self will often be brought to light in times of stress. Your reactions, your quick remarks when someone cuts you off, that thing that bubbles up, that's, that's your false self. That's, that's that hidden part that we often don't get to see. That's when it shows, shows up. And often we're thinking, where did that come from? Who is that person? That's, that's what's hidden. And so in this very place of, of communion with God, Hannah offers Yahweh what is most precious and dear to her. She lets go of ownership of her child, of being a mother, of raising her child. And so she makes a vow that from the start of his life to the end of his life, this child will belong to God. Remember last week, Pastor Kevin spoke of the widow and making an offering at the temple, and she offered pennies. And Jesus sees this and makes a comment to his disciples, and, and he says, hey, did you notice what, what she gave? She gave more than everybody else. And she did that because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her strength. And this is, saying, this is true of Hannah. She offers the Lord the very thing that would bring her fulfillment and joy. In doing so, in this place of suffering and death, Hannah arrives at our third part of this journey. You arrive at the center of freedom. Hannah is finally at peace. As she released as she is releasing her identity, her value, her worth in providing a child and has now found her worth in being Yahweh's daughter. Completely favorable and beloved. She moves away from her fear of being forgotten to a place of being seen. Now, Eli's words to her are life-giving. Again, Eli, the stand-in here for Yahweh. Eli says, the Lord of Israel knows you. I'm paraphrasing. He sees you. He hears you. Go in peace. Again, Father Boyle writes, how then to imagine the expansive heart of this God greater than God, who takes seven buses just to arrive at us. We settle sometimes for less than intimacy with God when all God longs for is this solidarity with us. The desire of God's heart is immeasurably larger than our imagination can conjure. This longing of God's to give us peace and assurance and a sense of well-being only awaits our willingness to cooperate with God's limitless magnanimity. In his book, uh, A Mother Would Take Seven Buses to Visit Her Incarcerated Son, 
and this child is crying seven buses. Who takes seven buses? A mom. The love of a mom will put you in seven buses to arrive. Imagine God's heart. Hannah is finally returned to herself. She discovers that she's valuable and precious and has worth just as she is. She belongs to God. She discovers that God is not displeased with her. There is no disappointment or disapproval in God's mind for Hannah or for us. He is on your side. He is your provider. He is your strength. He is your shield. And so Hannah has found a new freedom resting that her need is now in God's hands. And there in that sacred place of compassion, she finds what we all long for, deeply long for. Once we, we, we take away everything else, we, we, we realize that what we long for is peace, is peace. She is returned to wholeness. And she, for the first time in perhaps a long time, sees her true self. She discovers something that we often do not see in people, self-acceptance and self-love. A new resurrected life begins to unfold in her. She returns to her home. She eats. She drinks. And her sadness becomes her joy. The old way of neglecting herself, of disconnecting from Elkanah, you know, that's no longer needed. It's not part of her new life. In this new freedom, she discovers what, she, what was hers all along, Elkanah's love for her. There's a great peace in discovering your belovedness. And in love, there is nothing lacking. And only in discovering and accepting your identity as the beloved will you be able to receive and return the love already around you. Hannah and Elkanah now return to the Lord, not as fragmented too. Notice that they were worshiping separately. Elkanah would go, she'd stay. Then she would go. The text tells us that the next day, they return to worship together. A new joy, a new love, a new peace is now upon them. So for those of you who are married and are going through a rough patch, this is also for you. There is no way to heal a marriage without first going through healing yourself. Just can't happen. Notice Hannah's um, prayer with Yahweh. It wasn't about pennies. Did you catch that? She didn't go to the temple and go, Lord, can you deal with pennies? Like, what the heck? I was here first. 
Like the issue wasn't Penny. The issue wasn't Elkanah. She went inward. And she was talking about her wound. She went deep. It was about the healing that she needed so that everything else would fall into place. And so they returned to their home, and Hannah is now whole and free to enjoy and live in her full personhood, in her femininity and her sexuality. The text tells us that Alkana knows her wife, and if you don't know what that means, ask Brooke. He's the Bible expert. I'm not going to explain to you what Elkanah knowing his wife is. But he knows his wife. The Lord remembers her. Restoration is our vision here at MCF. To be returned to our true selves as whole and complete people with identity firmly placed on being God's delight and beloved. Our story ends with Hannah entering the last part of her journey. And she moves from a living in a place of merit to living in a place of grace. She soon conceives and she bears a son, Samuel. Friends, living in grace is living in God's compassion, in God's mercy, and in his unfailing love for us. No longer do we pursue people or things to fill our false self, but we are filled with joy and peace and are able to do something unimaginable to us in our own life. We give away, we give away our greatest gift. We give away what we value the most. We give ourselves to others and to the world. Hannah is now living in grace where she is completely free to hand over her child to Eli. Now, Hannah conceives and years pass. Samuel is about three or four when, when Hannah delivers him to Eli. Notice, Eli does not know about this vow. This was not spoken. So she could have gone along her way. I have my son. Nobody, nobody knows what my promise was. I'm good. Nothing happened. She comes back three, four years later and hands the child over. She gives away what she values the most. And you cannot do that unless you're living in God's grace. We read Hannah's song to the Lord. She's discovered this new joy, this new peace, this freedom. She has released control and ownership, and we Americans have a hard time with ownership. This is the hardest part of discipleship for us. It's mine. It's mine. She gives it away. She's been transformed into a woman grounded in the Lord, knowing that her precious gift belongs to God. 
Samuel, of course, will go on to become a great prophet and a guide to the people of Israel. He will anoint King Saul and King David. So true restoration is never complete until it gives itself away so that others may also be restored. I think this is the great mystery and paradox of life. When you discover who you really are, it causes you to give yourself away. Father Boyle quotes the poet Rumi. Find the real world, give it endlessly away. Grow rich, flinging gold to all who ask. Live at the empty heart of paradox. I'll dance there with you, cheek to cheek. Last Thursday, thanks because of your support and of your giving, whether through financial giving or food, we fed around 75 youth at Spy. So we provided uh, baked uh, chicken from Ralph's, uh, mashed potatoes, a veggie barley soup, salad, and dessert. I told you guys we'd go all out to Spy, right? It was, it was really good. The funniest thing, and I'll, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, so we had baked chicken, and I told the kids, you pick two. Pick two pieces. Um, and they just stared at me. I go, you pick two. And they kept saying chicken. I go, I know it's chicken. You pick two pieces. It was so out of their norm that they controlled what they eat. For us, we go, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. But when you don't have it, to somebody say, you pick. What a foreign concept. You pick. I, I, anyway, I, I was making fun of the kids. <laughs> but um, the paradox, of course, here is that, and it's true of any table, the more you empty of what you bring, the more you can feed those around. We are restored in order to restore. That's our vision. We are called to entrust our whole selves to God, to place our whole being into his care, and to live in his grace, and to give all that grace and all that love away, which, of course, is the very process of us being filled with love and grace. So in the coming months, you're going to be hearing more and more about our Grace Trek discipleship program. In a few weeks, you're going to hear from a few folks who've gone through the first round of Grace Trek. You're going to hear their stories of transformation, of change. Grace Trek offers us a roadmap for this journey of discovery and transformation. Grace Trek offers you the opportunity to follow in Hannah's footsteps and help you discover your false self and illuminate a new possibility for living in God's grace. In January, you, in January, you will be able to sign up for Grace Trek. And it is my prayer that you would consider that and, and take that step to travel with your fellow brothers and sisters in this journey.